0: come now to John chapter 3, one of the most deeply treasured chapters in the New Testament. Yet while it is treasured, it has at the same time become trivialized by glib and superficial references. You might have seen that goofy John 3.16 guy with the t-shirt and the placard that shows up at sporting events. Or maybe you remember that professional wrestler, wrestler, Stone Cold Steve Austin, who used Austin 3.16 as part of his marketing strategy. That particular verse, John 3.16, is the first statement of biblical doctrine that many people in evangelical homes memorize. And it is held forth as the simplest formula for entrance into the kingdom of God. For God so loved the world... That he gave his only begotten son, say it if you know it, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I quoted that from the King James Version because that's how I memorized it 44 years ago. I love that verse, and I think we all do. Especially if we have confidence in our salvation through Jesus Christ. But in a way it has come to epitomize our shallow thinking that is so common in our soundbite and slogan-saturated society. We sometimes, become, When something becomes so familiar and so commonplace, perhaps it is wise to consider its meaning again carefully and in the light of its context, lest we make it a vain repetition and miss the real meaning. In our self-centered and ambition-driven world, John 3.16 has become a formula, a means to an end, The emphasis has been placed on the individual's voluntary act of believing in Jesus in order to get something out of him, rather than the father's voluntary act of giving his own son. Furthermore, the wonder of regeneration, of being born again, is boiled down to man's free will choice to believe in Jesus, when reality is that God brings spiritually stillborn sinners to life through his Spirit who is like the wind that blows wherever it wills. I'm not going to preach specifically on John 3.16, although I will eventually get there, but I must refer to it because it is definitely the high point of this chapter and perhaps of the whole Bible. It is a mountain peak of God's gracious redemption of sinners through faith in the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ. But to appreciate the beauty of this mountain peak... We must step back from it to see the whole mountain and the whole range of God's gracious salvation. So to get some perspective, we're going to take our time getting to the pinnacle of John 3.16. We're going to survey the mountain from a distance by reading verses 1 through 21. And then we're going to begin our ascent, starting with the first nine verses. We'll take our time to absorb the scope and grandeur of spiritual regeneration through faith in Jesus Christ. So let's read now from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 21. Now there, uh, pardon me, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things unless that you do unless God is with him. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up and whoever believes in him, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting or eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through him, or might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the only Son of God. And this is the judgment the light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. May the Lord bless the reading of this word. So we have here an encounter between a deeply religious man and the Lord Jesus an encounter that shakes the foundation of Nicodemus's faith to the very core so that a true foundation can be laid, starting with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. But Jesus doesn't use the language of construction of foundations and stones here. Instead, he speaks of, instead of speaking of destroying and rebuilding, he speaks of being born and reborn, a concept that seems completely foreign to Nicodemus. Whose faith, up until this point, has been characterized by building, by a physical temple, and by building a structure of obedience upon the foundation of the law. Now we see that Nicodemus is a Pharisee and the ruler and ruler of the Jews. We can understand from this that he was thoroughly familiar with Jewish scriptures and customs. And that he was a man of considerable influence, probably with a religious resume similar to that of the Apostle Paul that's recorded for us in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Here's the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised than the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. That's the Apostle Paul. You can see from, if you read on in the context about him persecuting Jesus, that Paul was extremely religious, but that his good intentions fell far short of God's perfect standards of righteousness. His zeal to please God, in his zeal to please God, he actually persecuted the church of Jesus Christ, which, as we know from Christ's words to Paul in the book of Acts, amounted to persecuting Jesus himself. Remember, he said, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Paul was religious, but he was a religious sinner. The same was true of Nicodemus. Well, his sin is not mentioned or identified in our text. Although you could argue that Jesus talks about his unbelief, and he believes later on. But um, it is clear from the whole discourse that he lacks even rudimentary knowledge of spiritual things. And is therefore still dead in his trespasses and sins. So our first task in analyzing this this uh, passage is to examine the religion of a sinner. Now, the whole world really fits into the category of sinner. And even people who are here in this room, in one sense, we fit into the category of sinner. But to us has been added... A new nature, a second nature, and in that nature we fit into the category of saints, those who have been called and chosen by God. So let's look at the religion of a sinner. Now unlike the Apostle Paul who was perfectly confident in his religion before his encounter with the glorified Christ, and that really shattered his confidence, Nicodemus does not appear confident at all. He comes to Jesus by night. Some commentators think that it was because of fear of his religious peers the other pharisees and maybe the sanhedrin and that's entirely possible remember that jesus has just cleansed the temple an action which would surely make him the object of scorn to many a proud jewish heart so it would not make sense it would make sense that nicodemus would not want to be seen having an intimate personal conversation with him Others think that Nicodemus came at night in order to have uninterrupted time with Jesus because he had questions that could not be properly dealt with if he were competing with, other, with others for Christ's attention. In either case, it seems clear that he comes to Jesus not to discuss theology on a peer-to-peer level, but to attain some assurance of security in salvation. He sees in Jesus' unique authority and perhaps Some hope to address what he knows to be the emptiness of his own religious experience, of his religious practice. His religion is that of a sinner. He has the texts memorized, the rituals down pat, the respect of the people. He has the fringes on his robe and the phylactery on his forehead. But deep down, he knows he's a sinner the fact that he is coming to jesus by night rather than opposing him in broad daylight as paul did shows that maybe he's not a proud sinner but a penitent one sovereignly drawn to the father by jesus as the only by the father to jesus as the only hope for redemption perhaps he's at the point of he is at this point looking for one for the missing piece of the puzzle of his religious practice if he could just do this or do that, then he would have assurance of God's favor. We don't know exactly what's going on in Nicodemus' mind, but we do know that he knows Jesus has something that none of his learning or piety has been able to produce. Nicodemus knows he has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you know, deep down, I think every person in this world knows that. We suppress the truth of God in our unrighteousness. What he doesn't know is how to recover from such a fall. And so he comes to Jesus. But Nicodemus did not come to Jesus solely through an inner prompting of the Holy Spirit. Just as sinners do not ordinarily come to Jesus apart from the use of God's appointed means of grace. Which includes the preaching of the word. Preaching of the gospel. Nicodemus is aided by what he has already observed in Jesus' ministry. He's maybe heard him speak a little bit. He's seen some signs. So we come to our second point. We have seen the religion of a sinner. Let's move on now to the recognition of signs. We find it in verse 2 where Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. So far we've seen two signs, in our series anyway, we've seen two signs recorded in the Gospel of John. There is the turning of water to wine and the cleansing of the temple. Nicodemus probably knew nothing of the first sign since it was uh, likely a, a private sort of sign for his disciples. And it was only the servants and the disciples who knew. But he was probably quite aware of the second, the cleansing of the temple. Remember that John is very selective with the signs that he records with the intention that those reading about them will believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So he only records seven signs. In fact, John is very clear in chapter 20, verse 31, or 20, verse 30, that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. So regardless of which sign he has seen, Nicodemus has been thoroughly impressed by the signs that he has witnessed. Signs are curious things. Many people see them, but not many recognize them, and even fewer understand them. When we drive down the highways, we see a sign that says maximum 100 kilometers per hour. Now, if someone from biblical times were suddenly beamed into our vehicles and sitting there beside us, they could see the same sign but they wouldn't recognize its significance. They wouldn't know what it meant. We, on the other hand, have some knowledge about the sign. We know that what a kilometer is. And we know that the sign demands a specific response from us. But sometimes we don't recognize the sign. We know what it means. We just don't recognize its authority. And so we rationalize around it and step on the gas. Well, Nicodemus not only sees, but to some degree recognizes the signs that Jesus has performed. Rightly observing that Jesus is a teacher come from God. But others had seen the same signs as well, with only superficial results. We look back at the end of chapter 2, where we were in our last message. We see in verses 23 through 25... Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw, his, saw the signs that he was doing. So they've seen the signs and there's been some recognition. There's been belief. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. It says that many believed when they saw the signs, but evidently their faith was not enough to warrant any intimacy with Jesus. He would not reveal or, or entrust himself to them. At this point, we can observe in Nicodemus' reference... that Jesus, as a teacher, sent from God... that there is indeed a level of amazement... and even great respect for Jesus. He rightly connects the signs with the authority of Jesus' teaching. In the mindset of the Pharisee, no one had the right to teach at all... unless they were sent from God... In other words, no one could take, should take lightly the responsibility of expositing the word of God. So perhaps Nicodemus merely means to express respect for Jesus. Yet his linking of the signs and the teaching of Jesus shows that at least the desire to comprehend the meaning of the signs. There is at least a desire to comprehend the meaning of the signs and hopefully to act on them. To These signs demand a response of some kind. What we need to understand here is that until Jesus dismantles Nicodemus's false hope in religion and ritual and replaces it with the living hope of regeneration through the gospel, Nicodemus is still one of those people to whom Jesus would not entrust himself. He knows, Jesus knows what is in man. He knew what was in Nicodemus. He knows what is in me and he knows what is in you. He knows, that every, he knows that everything we have in ourselves, that is, in our fallen nature, is tainted in some way by sin and is therefore under his judgment. Yet he lovingly and patiently reveals to lost sinners the mystery of how a human being, sinful by nature and by choice, can come before God, not to be rejected as a sinner, but received as a saint. This brings us to our third point. We've seen the religion of a sinner and the recognition of signs. Now let's look at the revelation of the secret. Find that in verses 3 and 4. Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now it's kind of interesting. The text says Jesus... Answered him. Now, usually when we answer someone, there's an assumption, that there's a question that has preceded the answer. And we don't read a question here, just a statement. But we should know by now that Jesus doesn't need us to reveal anything about ourselves in order to know exactly what is in our hearts. You see, there is a question in Nicodemus's heart. He knows our secrets, the things that we are afraid or embarrassed to share with anyone else. He knew Nathaniel and that he was an Israelite without guile when he was under the fig tree before he had never even spoken to him. He knew Simon Peter's heart and his future when he named him Peter, the rock, the very first time he saw him. He knew his mother's motives when she came to him expecting him to solve the problem of the depleted wine at the wedding. So it's no surprise that Jesus answers the question that is in Nicodemus's heart, even before it comes to his lips. Jesus sees that Nicodemus is ultimately concerned with the sufficiency of his own righteousness and whether it is possible that he can have any part in the kingdom of God. You have to understand, Jesus is not just changing the conversation to something that he wants to talk about. He's getting right to the heart of why Nicodemus came to him. He gets right to the point, but in language... That is not accessible to Nicodemus. He says truly, truly, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now Nicodemus is already aware of the limitations of his religious practice. He knows that unless something radical happens, unless there's some kind of supernatural intervention, he is lost. Above all, he knows that he cannot see the kingdom of God. He doesn't have eyes to see the kingdom of God. He wants to. But he can't. And for him, this is a deep crisis. Jesus answers the unspoken question, but in a way that takes him completely off guard. In effect, he says, Nicodemus, I know you want to know the truth, so listen and listen good. That's kind of a, 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 that's actually a good paraphrase of verily, verily. It's listen and listen good. I'm about to say something really, really important. Unless you are born again, he says, unless you are completely made new, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Without a new birth, you have absolutely no perception of spiritual things, much less any assurance of entering the kingdom of God. Friends, every true encounter with Jesus reveals the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. We can't fool him with flattery or distract him with sleight of hand. Everything inside of us is laid bare before him. And the secret we carry, the secret we all carry, although it is really no secret at all, is that in us, in our sinful nature or in our flesh, dwells no good thing. It is our natural practice to fight against that truth, to deny that secret. We know we have faults. But we like to believe that we are self-redeemable if we just work a little harder or discover some special technique to circumvent the power of sin and at the very least escape its effects. But the message Jesus has for us is the same message that he had for Nicodemus. We must be born again. Nicodemus has taken a a lot of flack over the centuries for his response to Jesus' assertion. On the surface, it does seem to be kind of foolish. How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? It seems like an absurd response. Maybe even childish or sarcastic. But I would like to suggest that it is more likely a humble response. It's Nicodemus' way of saying... You say I must be born again, Jesus, but I haven't got a clue what you're talking about. You're speaking way over my head. Can you please help me understand what you mean? Surely, Nicodemus was well aware that his reference to re entering the womb would seem childish and ridiculous to Jesus, especially to an educated Pharisee and a ruler in Israel. But maybe he didn't care what Jesus thought. maybe he recognized that Jesus was already looking right into his heart and that he needed to come clean about his spiritual ignorance. I suggest, though I cannot prove, that Nicodemus is candidly admitting his carnality and his inability to perceive spiritual truth in the hope that Jesus will help him understand. Of this, I'm sure, Nicodemus was drawn by the Father to Jesus through the agency of the Holy Spirit in order to hear the message of the gospel. This drawing did not originate as an impulse in Nicodemus's will, but was planned in eternity past in the will of God, and now we see him sitting at the feet of Jesus, humble and ready to receive the words of life. Now, later on in the passage, Jesus rebukes Nicodemus fairly harshly for his unbelief, but we know that Nicodemus later believes and we also can see in that that he's in a sense it's kind of a rebuke of all of Israel anyway this leads us to our fourth point where Jesus clarifies regeneration by the spirit or by the Holy Spirit we can see in verse 5 that Jesus takes Nicodemus's question seriously and immediately begins to elaborate on the concept of regeneration or being born again Again, he begins his response with truly, truly, in order to stress the importance of what he's about to say and make sure that he has Nicodemus' undivided attention. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In this, Jesus redirects Nicodemus' attention from the physical realm to the spiritual meaning of the phrase, born again. Nicodemus probably expected as much, When he asked his previous clarifying question, he asked that silly question, but he did it in order to get more clarity. Jesus goes on to identify the two elements necessary for spiritual rebirth, which are water and the Spirit of God. Even today, people are a bit baffled by his prescription. Not so much by the spirit part, but by the water part. Some teach that baptism, water baptism is the means through which we receive the Spirit of God and enter into the uh, the earthly body of Christ. And others think that Jesus is simply referring to the two births, one being a natural birth, where, the, where we come into the world, born by water from our mothers, or, and the second birth, where the Holy Spirit imparts life to a person who is physically alive and spiritually dead. So, if you... Some would say he's just contrasting the two. the two uh, Your literal physical birth and the, and the second birth. This And that's feasible considering that Jesus' next statement is that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So you can see that could kind of make sense, couldn't it? Now i preached that passage with that same understanding in the past. But the inclusion of water... Being born by water and the Spirit, it may also be a depiction of the washing away of sins, as portrayed in Ezekiel 36, 23-27. This is the passage we read in our call to worship. And at the beginning of this passage, it says, it's not for your sake, Israel, that I'm going to do this. But it's for mine. And listen to what he says. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nation will know the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water upon you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will re- I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So do you see what's going on in this passage? Israel has engaged in continual, habitual, unrepentant sin and has profaned the name of the Lord. Not only that, she has caused other nations to profane his name by, their, by her bad behavior. So God steps in and unilaterally, for his own purpose, draws his people from among the nations. He sprinkles clean water upon them. And it's pretty obvious here that it's not physical water. But it's rather the washing away of sin. The cleansing of their uncleannesses. That can only be accomplished. As we know from the New Testament. By the blood of Christ. We saw this portrayed when Jesus changed the water. Of water. The ceremonial water. Used for repetitious ceremonial washing. Into wine. Which symbolized the permanent effectual cleansing. The inward cleansing of of the blood of Jesus Christ. Here in Ezekiel, in this prophetic passage, God not only cleanses his people, but he also gives them a new heart and a new spirit. He takes out their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. And I've said before, and I believe firmly, that there will be a national great turning of Israel through the sovereign work of God sometime in the future. But this passage, because it speaks of the new covenant, also includes us. And we are the first, those who believe and trust in Jesus Christ. We are the first to enter that covenant that is intended for for God's uh, people, Israel. And we we, we are literally crashing the gate and getting there first. There's going to be a time, and we are in the time, where our job is to make Israel jealous. Because the covenant promises... And the, the, the covenant of grace that we enjoy in Jesus Christ is something they will see that they're missing. Now, if this whole thing about a, a new heart and a new uh, a, a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone and a new spirit—if that doesn't describe being born again—I don't know what does. It seems certain that this it, that this is Je- in this Jesus has in my, This is what Jesus has in mind when he says. Unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. A new heart, a new spirit. Later, Nicodemus asked Jesus, how can these things be? And Jesus replies, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? In other words, the reality of the new birth is actually taught in the scriptures with which Nicodemus should have been familiar. You're a teacher. You know the scriptures. You should know this. Jesus rebukes Nicodemus not to shame him, but to point out that the truth has been there all along. The light has been shining in the darkness, but the people have been too blind to see it. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has neither comprehended it nor overcome it. But now, the light, the Word made flesh, is standing right in front of Nicodemus. Shining his light into Nicodemus' heart and all its brilliance. And we know that Nicodemus will eventually receive the light, understand the truth, and believe in Jesus. As we have many references later on to Nicodemus as a disciple. We could say that Nicodemus will reach the summit of John 3.16. The summit of saving faith in Jesus Christ but not without the realization that he stands at the foot of an unscalable peak. He can't climb it. He can't be born again. He can't make himself a new person. He needs a new heart and a new spirit. He needs his sins washed away. This is the truth that penetrates his heart as Jesus teaches him. We're going to consider just one more thing before we close today. And that is redirection by the Spirit. We find this in verse 6 to the second part of verse 8. Do not marvel what I said to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's obvious here that Jesus is comparing the wind to the Holy Spirit. The saying is a bit mysterious, but if we, were, if we just think about the wind for a moment, we can gain some understanding about what it means. First, like the wind, the Holy Spirit is completely and utterly free and unconstrained by the human will. We are fond of touting our own free will, and, may, and many teach that a person must choose Christ of their own free will. Essentially, according to this reason, if God wants to save you, but you don't want to be saved, God can't save you. But what does the text say? The wind blows where it wishes. Living in Wayburn we're all familiar with the behavior of the wind. It moves clouds and dust and tumbleweeds, sometimes buildings. It changes the direction of weather vanes and dramatically affects our gas mileage when we're traveling on the highway. One thing for certain, we do not control it. So the concept that Jesus wants Nicodemus and us to understand is that being born again is not the product of our will... And our desires, but that it comes about as a result of God's will and God's desire. When, when we respond to the gospel call and are saved, it is not a matter of us calling out to the wind and saying, Hey, wind, come over here. I want to be born again. No, it's a result of the wind coming down and sweeping us off, off our feet. We don't anticipate it. We don't plan it. The Holy Spirit and indeed the triune God is the one who anticipates and plans it. Nicodemus doesn't realize it yet, but it is the wind of the Spirit that has brought him to Jesus. That same wind now blows, whispers, and even gusts into his heart as Jesus speaks. Friends, it is the same wind that blows whenever the gospel is preached. No preacher controls the Holy Spirit. You don't control him by tuning out the message or hardening your heart. These are the words of God and the power of God for, for salvation, for everyone who believes. These are the words of life. The wind, when the wind blows, the Holy Spirit whispers, and the Holy Spirit whispers, everyone around hears its sound. But those in its path are radically affected and redirected and moved along. Though salvation is a sovereign act of God, it is apprehended through faith in the human heart. Not faith in the human heart. But faith of the human heart. In Christ. Not in a heart of stone. A heart of stone has no faith. But the regenerating wind of God. Comes along. And with the regeneration. With the new life. Comes the realization of who Jesus is. And comes the necessity of believing in him. And there is in a matter of speaking, a free belief in Jesus. But it does not come from the old heart. It comes from the new heart. The heart that Jesus has changed. In the heart of flesh. The new heart that replaces the heart of stone. I know I just kind of said that we can't call out on the Holy Spirit and demand to be born again. But we can certainly take Him at His word and yield to His Spirit as He moves. If God is speaking to your heart today, listen to his voice. Trust in Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I've spoken a lot about the gospel. I have, and I've spoken of good news, and I've spoken of eternal life through Jesus Christ, and I have even spoken of the gift of God. But... The fact that there's good news and that there's new life through Jesus. That doesn't mean anything until you know what he did in order to bring that new life to you. And I know that I'm probably preaching to the choir. But hopefully this choir will take the message and preach it to someone else. And that is that Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us. And bore in his own body on the cross all of our iniquities. He was wounded for our iniquities, for our sins. He was bruised for our transgressions. And the punishment that brought us peace with God was laid upon him. And by his stripes, by his sacrifice, by his death for us, we are healed. And when we believe that Jesus has done this... And we understand that it was our sin that put him on the cross. And we believe, as the scripture says, that he rose again on the third day. And he now lives and makes intercession for us. And that he's coming again. When we believe in that Jesus. And when we abandon our faith in our own works. We enter into eternal life. And this is something that is done by God. In our next message, we're we're going to see how Nicodemus was called out on his unbelief. Perhaps he was aware of his sin. Perhaps he had some understanding that Jesus was the remedy for his sin. But until there was that changed heart, Nicodemus still had a heart of stone. Perhaps this message today, or perhaps even as you go home and you read John chapter 3, if you are uncertain about this matter of being born again, the Holy Spirit will come and whisper, and move, and redirect, and regenerate you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for this wonderful passage of Scripture. It is so familiar, and yet with that famili- familiarity, sometimes there is um, there is a, an apathy towards something so precious. And we, we lose sight of the beauty and the wonder of this core of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that anyone who is in Christ becomes a new creature, that old things pass away and all things have become new. And I pray, Lord, that this would be the case, even for us who are already born again and we have that assurance we would understand that you are continually making things new in us. Lord, that your spirit is continually breathing upon us, blowing through us, and moving us, and changing us. And I pray, Lord, that we would indeed be sanctified by the spirit of God. That we would be made holy through his work. We ask, Lord, that this word would stay with us, that it would be an encouragement, and Father, that Your name would be honored and glorified. And we pray this in Your name and for Your sake, Lord Jesus. Amen. And we are dismissed.